Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. In this final leg of Season 5, I'm reading my way through every single goddamn page in The Revenge of Kang, the final module in the Time Warp Adventure series for TSR's Marvel Super Heroes role-playing game. And as I do, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on each page. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. The Revenge of Kang was written by Ray Winninger and was published in 1990. Today we're discussing page 39 of The Revenge of Kang. Today begins chapter 15, which is entitled The Fantastic Four. And let's just dive right into it. Our heroes, the misfits in this case, are here to stop one of Kang's many loyal Kangs from somehow preventing the Fantastic Four from coming into being. I'm going to dive right in because as you're going to see, this is the episode that had to happen. This is one of those things we were going to have to talk about eventually. I'm kind of shocked that it comes so late in the season, but the day is here and I'm ready. The Misfits fire up the time machine. Let's assume it's the old faithful time machine that we've had all this time, not the newfangled Kang time machine. I know it can fly, but it's untested. Who knows what kind of shit Kang's got built into it. It's already shot security lasers at us once or twice, so you let the 1960s X-Men deal with that shit. I think the Misfits would prefer to travel in their trusty, for some reason still swastika-emblazoned time machine. Quote, The heroes can travel to this encounter anytime after Chapter 15 by traveling to the time-space coordinates corresponding to the Fantastic Four, which were listed in Kang's computer sphere. Note that all the coordinates the heroes found in the sphere are approximations only. The pilot of the time ship must work out his or her own landing coordinates based upon Kang's calculations. You should warn the PCs there is no guarantee they will be materializing in the exact time and place the Kang duplicates are materializing, only that they will be materializing somewhere and sometime nearby. On this team, Superball's alter ego Ronda de la Cruz does the piloting. In the event, there are no piloting roles necessary. This is another smooth ride in the time machine. But nonetheless, the Misfits don't know that. So Ronda's at the helm, using the data in the time ball about where Kang was going to land to try to take down the Fantastic Four. She plugs in some coordinates of her own and heads back to go find and stop Kang. Meanwhile, other members of the team are free to peruse the time ball's information about the Fantastic Four, which is as follows, quote, The original members of the Fantastic Four, Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Girl, the Human Torch, and the Thing, were actually a scientist, Reed Richards, his girlfriend, Sue Storm, her brother, Johnny Storm, and a test pilot, Ben Grimm. Richards was working on a top-secret starship for the Aerodyne Corporation, a firm sponsored by the government of the United States. When government supervisors refused to permit Richards to become one of the first passengers aboard the starship, he recruited his friend Ben Grimm to help him break into Aerodyne and steal the ship for a brief test flight. Richards was so sure of the ship's safety, he even allowed Sue and Johnny Storm to accompany him on the flight. Richards and his friends successfully broke into Aerodyne and launched the ship. But once the ship broke the atmosphere, it was pelted with cosmic radiation, which mutated the cells of the passengers and endowed them with fantastic powers. So there's your quick summary of who the Fantastic Four are, if you're not familiar. And we get the essential details about how the Fantastic Four came to be. It's really a result of the same dynamic that is going to make the Fantastic Four so fun and occasionally infuriating over decades of comic books. Reed Richards is a very smart, very arrogant, often irresponsible man with friends and family who are way better than he deserves. Like Ben Grimm is a college buddy. If you were in a pinch and needed to borrow some money, or like you had some kind of emergency and you absolutely needed someone to watch your kid, a college buddy would be going above and beyond to show up after years and do that for you. Ben Grimm broke into a secure facility owned by an aerospace contractor for the United States government to steal a government-sponsored rocket ship and pilot it off the fucking earth for Reed Richards. That's what Ben Grimm does for a college buddy. 
upon assurances that this is safe and everything's going to be fine, uh, which tells you everything you need to know about Ben Grimm and Reed Richards. What comes next is text for the judge. And uh, w- w- the author is playing some jazz here. You got to listen to the notes that the author is not playing. Listen to this. Quote, by glancing at the dates included with this information and the chronometer inside their time machine, the PCs see that Richards is set to steal the starship one night after the hero's arrival. When the heroes punch the proper coordinates into a time machine and materialize, read the following text. And here's that box text, quote, Your time machine has materialized in some thick brush on a low ridge overlooking a fenced-in research center. Outside of the research center is a huge sign which reads Aerodyne, Inc. You see a staff car pull up to the gate. A general summons the two soldiers who guard the entrance. Uh, yes, General Gray? Boys, I'm going to be gone for a few days. I've rented a cabin just down the road from here. If anybody needs me, you know where you can find me. Yes, General Gray. And by the way, I think you ought to get some troops together and sweep this whole area. We've heard some rumors that there are saboteurs about. So we now know who General Gray is. We know that he rented a cabin nearby. We know that he's ordered a sweep of this whole area because they've heard there's going to be sabotage. What we don't know, I want to point out, is when we are exactly and why. Despite the fact that the rest of the page leans heavily on this clock we've just had set for us, there's a security sweep coming, right? So pretty much the rest of this page is taken up with like, you're going to want to hide your time machine. Unbeknownst to the players, they have 15 minutes before a security sweep comes around to find them and the time machine if they're not careful. The sweep consists of 12 soldiers. First thing they're going to do is drive around in jeeps around the perimeter. Then they're going to search the various areas of the map. If the heroes try to hide when soldiers pass, it's a good intensity agility feat roll. The biggest problem is hiding the time machine. You need incredible strength to pick it up and move it somewhere out of the way where the soldiers can't see it. Otherwise, you could camouflage it where it is, and that's a remarkable intensity reason feat, blah, 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 blah. There's stuff here about creating a diversion, and of course, what happens if you're captured. What is not addressed on this page is the fact that, astoundingly, for the first time in this entire adventure series, our heroes now, in the course of the adventure, not off screen, but but on screen while we're playing them, have a functioning time machine and the capacity and motive to precisely pilot it. This seems like a pretty big deal in terms of our capacities, like not to put down the misfits up to this point, you know, it's great to have a force field. It's great to have pyrokinesis or astral projection. It's great to be a robot mermaid. Obviously, that's what we all want. But for all that they were cool and capable before, they're vastly more capable now that they have a functioning time machine that they know how to pilot. To the best of my recollection, entering this scene is actually the first time that our heroes have successfully entered coordinates in a time machine and gone somewhere in this adventure path, despite the fact that we've had a time machine in this adventure path since, I don't know, a quarter or a third of the way through the first adventure. So it's been a long time coming, but it's here now. The question then is, given that we've got this giant immobile time machine, given that it's going to be very difficult for us to pick it up and move it somewhere, given that we're apparently casting around looking for like, how can we build a ghillie suit for our time machine? You know, let's let's cover it in branches try to make it look like a big squat swastika emblazoned tree. Does no one think, hey, it's a time machine and we know how to pilot it. Instead of parking it here one day before Reed Richards and his unreasonably loyal friends are due to steal this spaceship, why don't we just like go back a couple days? Why don't we move like three blocks over from here and a couple of days earlier? Then we can really get the lay of the place, make sure everything's on the up and up. We might even be able to observe Kang materializing himself when he comes here to try to stop the Fantastic Four from forming. You know, we know what his time ship looks like. We can keep an eye out for it. I mean, we have the coordinates he used to get here, at least the approximate coordinates. So keeping an eye out for his ship to materialize should not be too difficult. And in any case, 
If we don't find anything useful a couple of days ago, where's the harm? Worst case scenario, a couple of days pass, and here we are right back where we started. Except we know ahead of time about the security sweep so we can come with some time machine camouflage supplies, not be caught off guard here. And if this discussion does come up, it's going to lead to further questions. We enter time-space coordinates when we move this thing, right? That's why we're at the site. We're at the base where the spaceship is going to launch, not some random place on the planet Earth on the day when the Fantastic Four are going to get their powers. So if we can control the spatial coordinates, can we materialize this thing maybe inside one of the buildings we want to look into on the base? Maybe at least inside the fence? I mean, we could scope it out from here, find a spot that looks out of the way, and we could rematerialize there, be in a better position to hide this thing. Or here's an idea. Why not go to the future where and when we know the Fantastic Four are supposed to crash and see what happens? And then, you know, we could take it a step back and see what happens at the next earlier step of this and figure out where the disconnect is, figure out where things go differently from the history we're familiar with so that we can pinpoint what Kang would have been trying to do back here, then come back here and solve everything once we know what we're looking for. Because at this stage, like we're sitting here outside this base and who knows where Kang is, what he's up to, what's supposed to happen. Is he going to try to kill the Fantastic Four? Is he going to blow up the ship? We don't know. The judge's text really tries to elide all the possibilities here. All it says is that we glance at the dates associated with the Fantastic Four, which are not made explicit because the author can't decide when any of this is supposed to be happening. You'll note the total lack of a year on any of this. And by glancing at those dates, we can tell that we are one night early for the Fantastic Four's flight. And then it just says, quote, when the heroes punch the proper coordinates into a time machine and materialize, read the following. What proper coordinates? Didn't we choose the coordinates? Didn't we have approximate coordinates for where Kang was supposed to go? And then we decided, Ronda de la Cruz specifically decided what to punch into the time machine. That's a, that's a very significant choice. Like, do we want to try to hit it as nearly as we can so that like Kang steps out of his time ship and then our time machine immediately drops on his head? Is that the best way to do this? Or do we want to show up like a week early and fully scout and prepare and like have a trap ready for him when he shows up and have all the information and be one step ahead of him already? Those are both uh, meaningful options that it's fully within the player character's power to take. The dumbest thing on this page is that after excuse, after excuse, after excuse, and I understand this, the time travel stories are driven by these excuses. I'm not complaining about that, but the author has run out of them. That's really the problem. The author has run out of reasons why we can't intelligently use this time machine to solve our problems. It's already in the box text at the beginning of this adventure that we've been traipsing around time, having pleasant outings in all different historical periods. Clearly we're good at piloting this time machine. So now here we are, no turbulence, we've got a competent pilot, the time machine is working, we have our coordinates, our chronometer is working, we should be able to go anywhere in time and space that we want. And so the idea that we're going to be standing here on a ridge outside this base, just fucking sweating bullets, trying to cover our time machine in foliage in 14 minutes, so we still have time to like dive into some holes that we dug when a jeep drives by, looking for strange activity. Why would we do that when we have all of time and space before us? I mean, you can't even use the Doctor Who excuse where like the time machine needs to recalibrate so it can't launch again because we just did that last scene and we established that it takes 10 minutes. The patrol isn't coming for 15 minutes. We'll be we'll be fine. We got plenty of time and no spoilers. But next page, we're going to get into searching this facility, trying to figure out what Kang is up to. And we'll talk about it tomorrow. But we're talking about dozens of tedious roles that represent a long period of in-character time, a ton of hoops to jump through. If at this stage, the very beginning, the players aren't thinking, let's use this time machine to try to short circuit this, on the next page for sure, once the actual search starts, somebody's going to realize, what are we doing ducking these security waves, creeping around this place, hopping over chain link fences? 
when we have a machine that can go anywhere, anytime. Time travel is notoriously difficult. It's hard to make a plot like this work. And I'm not even going to venture to offer like how this should have been, because there are a lot of different ways to approach it, which all have their pros and cons. You know, if you think about the big pop culture time travel stories uh, of recent years, something like Back to the Future, the Bill and Ted trilogy, Doctor Who, the way time travel works in Star Trek, they all would have approached a story like this in a different way with a different excuse for why you can't just bop around this place, zigzagging through time and space, using time travel to trivialize all challenges, except for Doctor Who during the Moffat years, which just would have let that shit happen. But in most time travel stories, what you would have is like, we've already become part of the course of events here. Or, the time machine doesn't do well with short jumps. I could take you to Antarctica or Mars, but I can't take you into that shed over there. Or, five hours from now in our personal timeline, no matter where in time and space we go, the world is going to blow up. So we don't have time to dick around jumping from time period to time period. We got to hit the ground running out of this time machine and bust into this facility full speed like we're on Legends of the Hidden Temple. You can you can do it however you want. It's the dumbest thing because none of those options are taken No clear account of what the time machine is capable of is available. It's presented as though we just push a button and go to this particular point in time and space when actually that was our decision and the author just hoped that we wouldn't notice. And it's done because not only is no reason given, but in fact, no actual bar is laid to the players just abusing the fuck out of time travel to make most of the challenges on this page trivial. I'm not mad that the player characters aren't supposed to do that. Like, time travel stories are no fun if you just stand around in your time machine being clever and pushing buttons the whole time. I get it. Just, if you don't want the players to do that, please help out the judge in explaining why they can't do that. Or at least stating that they can't do that. As I said at the top, this was a discussion we had to have at some point. I know we touched on this in the very first adventure briefly when we first got the time machine because it was not totally clear what we could do with the time machine. And certainly the player characters didn't know. This is sort of part two of that conversation where now we know. It is clear in the fiction that we're capable of piloting the time machine, so it really bears considering again. Now that it is canonical that this is a fully functional time machine that we have access to, we really need some explanation from the author of why we don't just time travel bullshit our way through the rest of the story. You know what's a good time travel movie? Bill and Ted Face the Music. I can't start another podcast about Bill and Ted. I just can't. There's no more room in my schedule for daily podcasts, not even short ones. Although, a one-shot podcast that is actually seconds long, that seems doable. Here we go. Party on, dudes, and welcome to Wild Seconds, the seconds-long Wild Stallions podcast. The third Bill & Ted movie is Bill & Ted Face the Music, and I think it's a good movie, but it's an especially good time travel movie. The Bill & Ted movies in general are underappreciated for how much thought they've clearly put into the way time travel works in the films, despite the fact that they seem like like knucklehead movies where the time travel is just set dressing. A wonderful example of this is a scene in Bill and Ted Face the Music where Bill and Ted encounter another version of Bill and Ted from the future, and future Bill and Ted attempt to pull this thing that's always being done in the Bill and Ted movies where it's like, well, we remember what happened in the past version of events. The Bill and Ted we're following, who are from the relative past of these other Bill and Ted's, are like, how do we fight back against us's who remember how these events went down? And then they have one of the most brilliant ideas I've ever seen in a time travel story. They put fucking buckets on their heads and run away blind until they stumble off a balcony. In this way, they make sure that there's no way they in the future can remember where they went and how they escaped. Also, and I know that I'm going long here, thereby alienating the core audience of Wild Seconds who demand a tight eight seconds. But Ted's daughter in this movie is played by Bridget Lundy Payne. They play the character of Billy as basically a version of Ted, gender swapped and updated to 2020. And I am mad about what a sexy performance this is. We weren't ready 
when we turned on Bill and Ted Face the Music to feel these feelings, not just about Billy, but you're doing such a compelling riff on the original Ted character. At a certain point in this film, you become so horny for Bridget Lundy Payne that you begin to become horny for Keanu Reeves, which is not something I was prepared for. Maybe you're already there. I wasn't. So in conclusion, Bill and Ted Face the Music, a funny movie, a well-constructed time travel story, and Bridget Lundy Payne's performance as Billy, not only very strong all around, but also... I have not been this distracted by sex appeal while trying to watch good sci-fi since Jed Zia Dax. Anyway, please forgive the excruciating length of this episode, and I will see you next time on Wild Seconds. Until then, be excellent to each other. Okay. All right. <laughs> that was good. That added a lot. I think a lot of added value to this episode. Now you understand my point about the effort that canon should go into making these time travel stories make sense. And on top of that, you know, maybe you'll Google a picture of... Bridget Lundy Payne as Billy from Bill and Ted Face the Music and have whatever your current sexuality is just blossom into an overall horniness for everyone who talks like they're from California. I recommend it. It's good. You know what isn't good? Dozens of egregious abuses of the intensity rules. Join me next time for that on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact me however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Gmail, Podbean, your favorite podcatcher, etc., etc. This episode's music, used under Creative Commons license, is Take Us to the Nearest Starbase by Astrometrics, whose work you can find at soundcloud.com slash astrometricsband.